Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Many of us are subjected to a profiling lens. Too often that lens it occurs in a very harmful way and most times it's a fatal way. So health injustice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the way I see it, it's evident in the numbers, the high level of illness experienced, the preventable deaths, but it's also evident in how we feel. Health justice, what does it look like for First Nations people? This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. Justice in the public health sector came under scrutiny this year when the New South Wales Parliament launched an inquiry into the delivery of services to regional and remote communities. Submissions tended to the inquiry highlighted how systemic racism in the public health sector is a major deterrent for First Nations patients seeking medical assistance. One of those submissions focused on the 2016 death of Wiradjuri woman Naomi Williams. A coronial inquest into her death was highly critical of the level of care provided by staff and doctors at the Tumut Hospital. It heard that Naomi had presented to the facility 20 times before her death from septicemia. Advocates have labelled it a preventable death, highlighting the need for justice in the public health sector. That was the focus of an online forum held earlier this year organised by the National Justice Project. Joining the conversation were Indigenous Health Humanities Scholar with the Queensland University of Technology, Professor Chelsea Wadigo, CEO of the Lowercher Institute and former CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, Janine Muhammad, Project and Partnerships Manager and Solicitor at the National Justice Project, Ariane Dozer, and Helena Kalik, a PhD student at the University of Queensland. Her current research focuses on coronial inquests into preventable Indigenous deaths in the health system. We begin the conversation with Professor Chelsea Wadigo as she considers the cultural divide when it comes to concepts of justice and just whose terms are being applied. I come to the conversation about justice really as a blackfella and I had this really, I've always had this, this stubborn curiosity about what justice feels like and uh, in, in a way that wasn't always a, a healthy curiosity. Uh, it's, it's one that I think has betrayed us all at some point. But I was really curious about what, what justice would feel like. And so there's places I've played in to kind of get a sense of what, what that might be, whether it's pursuing a race discrimination case or working to support some legal responses um, to health injustices. Um, but at the same time, I've had a real frustration with this notion of justice as a black fellow in that the way in which it's attached to our death. And so justice often arrives too late. Justice is something we fight for after we've lost, lost a loved one. And it's not something that's afforded to us now living. And even in the odd occasion that it finally arrives, and maybe it's via a coronal inquiry or a civil suit of some sort or a med negligence outcome, it has yet to stem the tide of black deaths in custody, in hospitals and health systems. And so even when there have been these kind of wins that have, have come too late, 
they haven't done what the families have called for in the steps of coroner's courts or wanting to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else again. And so there's this sense of frustration with justice that even when it arrives, it doesn't do what we want it to do. And for a long time, I thought about justice was, I really thought it was in the winning, winning the case. Um, That's certainly how we've grown up with justice in terms of popular culture. It arrives with the courtroom verdict at the end of a movie and, and that's how we come to, come to understand it and it's seen as something that, that sits in, in courtrooms. And it wasn't until during a, a really challenging time in my life where I was facing, um, you know, the process of, of two race discrimination fights in relation to stuff that had happened to me personally that I got to sit at a kitchen table of Aunty Dr Lilla Watson and it was here that I realised that justice wasn't found in the winning. And she really questioned me about what this notion of winning that I had. But at the same time, she talked about the fact that we're never going to get back what was taken from us. Like, we will never be restored whole. And so what is this winning you're looking for? And in particular, she questioned me on whose terms was I trying to win? And I couldn't answer her. But after some time, I came to realise that the winning, um, this notion of justice wasn't going to be found in those, in the courtroom verdicts or in those processes, because the process itself is so violent, like racial violence gets reproduced and revisited upon us during these processes. And so even at the end of the day, if there is a win, there's a violence that we've had to revisit in the course of it. And there's a notion of justice that the colonisers almost tease us with that really is a performance of justice. It's not any real sense of justice. And so I think there's a betrayal of this idea of justice as as the colonisers understand it. And I think we get tempted by it. For me, in this sense, it's like justice is not in the finding, it's more in the feeling. It's in the living, in the being and in the loving. And this the stubbornness of blackfellas in the pursuit of justice. And I've seen it in, a, in, a, in others. I think about the anniversary of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the panel that was um, convened at UTS with family members who had lost loved ones. And in that conversation, I got to ask, what does justice mean to you? And I remember Michaela Reynolds saying, justice is everything that it isn't. You know, in, in being denied justice, we know its importance and its significance to us. I um, remember Anish Shirley Lomas talking about justice being fighting for her son to get his voice heard until the day she dies. I think about the Bowerville Murders documentary I see recently and the two young cousins of Clinton who experienced his death. They, they weren't alive when they lost him, but they've lived their life fighting for justice for him. And so it's understanding justice in a whole different way that it's found in, in the acts of blackfellas. When we say sovereignty never ceded, still here, always was, always will be, it's in the doing all the time. And I think that this idea that we have to we have to wrestle justice from white processes and systems is one that I think has, has failed us and betrayed us. And so I just wanted to, I guess, finish up on a, a quote from Annie Jenny Monroe, who just captured this sense of justice in a really powerful way. And she said, it's a strange thing, justice. I've never seen it, never felt it, don't know the dimensions of it. It's very much like a spiritual being. I know that justice is there somewhere. We haven't sighted it, we haven't seen it, but we know it's there. And it has just as strong a force as those spirits that kick up the behind when you're doing the wrong thing. And it's something that's motivated generations of people within our country, striving for justice for its own sake, really. Thank you. And such um, 
powerful reflections on how to reconceptualize the concept of justice. Chelsea, you talk about retiring hope. Does that mean giving up hope in the pursuit of justice? Yeah, so I think um, there's this that I no longer see, um, uh, have, I don't have hope in, in white institutions. I don't have hope in those processes. And it doesn't mean I, I don't fight. So I think I I don't have a lot of faith in, say, uh, the process of a racial discrimination complaint and I don't have a lot of hope in coronal inquiries. Um, and Helen will speak to, you know, the reasons for that. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not still interested in this idea of justice. That doesn't mean I'm not still interested in the fight. But I'm interested in a fight that offers more than what hope has. And so I talk a lot about the betrayal of hope um, that if we just wait for it, it will arrive someday, that it will come to us. And that day hasn't come, you know. There was the time in the, like, the 90s where we spoke about, you know, Jimmy Chi of Brand New Day, Udra Nunak spoke of a new dawn breaking. And it, there's, there, there is no new day. There is just every day in this place. And so we have to work at how do you live every day in a place that refuses, refuses to recognise our humanity and, and insisting upon that, well, I'm not, not, not handing it over to them. To, to their decision, for them to arrive at, at, at the sense of that we des- are deserving of justice. And that was the thing that I think um, the most powerful thing about the Barrel documentaries and, and following that journey of all of those families was, was just their power. Like you could, you could watch that and see the powerlessness and the frustration of the legal system here and the violence of all the legal system here. But uh, if we can't forget the power of all of those families. And so I was, I had this real sense of being inspired by the sense of justice they had. I just think of, I think it was Clinton's Arnie Helen Juro. And uh, if you want to, justice as embodied as, as, as an everyday act, just the way in which um, that determination, um, that insistence and yeah, that moment never arrives for them. But I've got to, I, I, you know, that was the most powerful articulations of what justice justice is. Just in, um, I was going to ask you about the Barraville documentary. I don't know if you want to say anything more about that because you have uh, obviously said that. But it just, in listening to you speak, Chelsea, we're reminded about how much uh, advocacy is, is an ongoing process. And, of course, if we take your reflection about the colonial structures that are, you know, that, that are unreflective and therefore aren't changing. Um, from, your, from your perspective, what's the, how do, as uh, people who want to see change, what are the sort of strategies that you think uh, are effective in terms of getting that system to challenge its own colonial positioning? Or do you think that that is just something that isn't possible? I think it's a kind of a sovereignty never ceded kind of way of being. Um, I this this stubbornness. Um, you know, the, there was one part there where the family talk about. Um, you know, people haven't realized we've never done this before. As they're fighting for years, they're saying we've never done this before, and then they go, but neither has the Australian legal system. It's never done this either. Um, and it's this stubbornness of, of blackfellas, I mean, in terms of teaching how to fight and strategy, um, is that you're always fighting. Um, you, you can never stop fighting. 
And but there's a power and a beauty in that fight for justice. Um, and that's the thing that just struck me. Um, I think you can watch that documentary and you can look at the stories of blackfellas and all the injustices we experience. Um, but if you can't see the sense of justice that blackfellas embody every day, all the time, then you've missed you've missed it. Because then you've bought into the idea that justice is something that belongs to white people and it's some kind of benevolent gift that they bestow to us. We've always known justice in this place. Like, we've always known that. And so, and that's what Anilula did for me in terms of reminding on whose terms are you operating. We know that their sense of justice is so unjust and so violent Yet, paradoxically, we rely on it for some kind of respite from the violence we experience in the society that we exist within. So I think we have to recognise, the strategy has to be, we have to recognise the limitations of this place. We have to know the violence of this place and be honest about that, um, but still get up each day and fight. And that's what blackfellas have shown us all the time, this, this getting up each day and fighting and fighting for a loved one that you've never even met. Like, that's just so powerful and so inspiring and so so beautiful frustrating yes um but but this is the strength of the sense of justice that blackfellas have in this place despite all of the stuff we've endured thank you so much i wish we had more time but we'll hopefully uh, be able to get some questions in a bit later on but um i have to uh, now turn to ariane dozer who it's my great pleasure to introduce She's a proud descendant of the Gayuri and Butchula peoples, a solicitor and projects and partnerships manager at the National Justice Project. Uh, she supports NJP clients who've experienced negligence and discrimination by state agencies, as well as leading numerous collaborative community projects. Prior to joining the National Justice Project, Ariane worked with the First Nations team at the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Disability Royal Commission. I'm really delighted she's joined the panel to me. She represents that next generation of Indigenous lawyers who are coming through as real game changers and really giving back to the community. So Ariane, thank you so much. And I'll hand over to you for your thoughts. Thanks, Larissa. And hello to everybody joining today. Um, I too would like to begin by paying my deep respects to all First Nations people, elders and ancestors across the lands and waters. I want to acknowledge my old people the of the Gairi and Bachelor Nations and I want to pay my respects to the Bidjigal and Gadigal peoples on whose land I join you from today. And I especially thank their elders and ancestors for looking after this beautiful coastline on which I live and that helps me stay strong. Firstly, I just want to share um, how incredi incredibly privileged I am to be able to share this panel with such absolute powerhouses today. And I want to pay my deep respect and gratitude to you all for your wisdom and leadership and knowledge. Um, today, we're here to talk about what health justice means for First Nations people. And with respect, I'd like to do that through the lens of our clients' experiences at the National Justice Project or the NJP in seeking justice for discriminatory and negligent healthcare. At NJP, every day we see how the colonial legal and health systems were not designed to provide justice to First Nations people, but rather the opposite, as tools of oppression and greed and exclusion and violence, as Chelsea said. Justice in the context of health justice for First Nations people 
isn't about what the law says or what is the business as usual approach. It actually depends on what our clients want and need to restore equity and healing. But I can't help thinking, what is justice in situations that involve the loss of a loved one or irreparable harm? How can you redress that situation? And as First Nations people, we recognise family and community are central, where justice is not an individual concept and can't be achieved while others in the community continue to be at risk of harm. Because then on that spiritual level and cultural level and community level, you're not whole. And in the context of deaths in custody, I think this is really relatively well understood in the sense that there is no justice or success for one family while others continue to suffer at the hands of the state. And we see that in the strong community movement to stop black deaths in custody. When we speak with our clients about what, what outcomes they seek, often it is to prevent and protect other families from going through what they've been through. And I think this is the critical point of difference for First Nations people and indeed the work that NJP does. Traditional legal processes might focus on compensation or findings or recognition. And while all of these things might be on the table and may help a family to heal, this need to dismantle the policies and laws and structures that routinely disempower First Nations people from participating, from prospering and from accessing critical services like healthcare is a unique battle that requires a different approach. And in that sense, what is justice? Justice means being treated with dignity. Justice means equity. Justice means not being targeted or stereotyped or turned away. And justice means respect. It means culturally safe services. It means receiving care for health needs and not police violence. And justice means not, not being afraid to seek help. When we are working with families who have suffered racist and negligent healthcare in the community or in state institutions, there are all sorts of avenues that we can go down. Advocacy, complaints, mediation, inquests, going to court, any, any pathway that has the potential to meet the client's needs and, and secure culturally safe and quality healthcare. But the reality is, as Chelsea highlighted, none of these processes or systems are friendly or adequate or appropriate. And we have to do our best to support and protect our clients from the inherent violence of these systems every day. We have to see these systems in the light of the, of the history of this nation and its public and political structures built on invasion and brutality. And it is clear how these structures continue to perpetuate disadvantage and trauma. And with a system that is so dysfunctional and broken and built to repress, in many cases, we have to get creative and approach from different angles to get what justice might mean for our clients. A unique part of our practice at NJP, I believe, is our commitment to walk with our clients in whatever direction might have the potential to reach the outcome that they want, whether that be through education or advocacy or the courtroom. Most people are familiar with how the system failed Dungadi man David Dungay Jr. 
and his family's continuing battle for justice, for taking him away. But what people might not know is that David Jr.'s death was a result of inadequate healthcare. He was in a prison health facility for medical needs. And instead of receiving that care, he was attacked by corrections officers and died. After almost six years of walking with the family, Ani Latona Dunge has now put Australia on notice by taking her fight for justice to the United Nations. And while no mother should have to do that, Latona's decision is a result of the government's failure to respond to her cries for justice. And in the case of the death of Wiradjuri woman Naomi Williams, convincing the coroner to recognise that bias and prejudice of the hospital system played a role in Naomi's death was novel. But of course, that shouldn't be considered unusual. We know that racism is rampant. But slowly breaking down the barriers to address and eliminate racist systems and practices is no simple task. It's 250 years of work and it goes on. And in Naomi's case, the fight is not over. We continue to work with the family to ensure the health minister makes good on his promise to implement the coroner's recommendations, which include adequate monitoring of institutional bias in the health system. At NJP, we will continue to work towards stopping racism to ensure appropriate healthcare is accessible to everyone, no matter if you're in a regional town or an institution. The right to healthcare is not discretionary and it should not be dependent on the colour of your skin or your privilege. If we can repurpose the system so that it's accessible and safe, maybe people won't be afraid of seeking help. The health justice work of NJP is about challenging the systemic discrimination in the health system by securing legal and policy reforms to ensure equitable access to quality, dignified and culturally safe care. But achieving system-wide change cannot be done in isolation. It not only relies on listening to the clients and the communities, but it also means collaborating with others like the Partnership for Justice and Health and the work of Chelsea and Helena QUT. So in closing, I, I think it's all of these things combined that allow us to be successful in supporting our clients and the communities to achieve a sense of justice. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we're asking what is health justice and what does it look like for First Nations people? This question was fundamental to a recent online forum organised by the National Justice Project. Let's return to the conversation now and we pick things up with Janine Muhammad. In that question that you've asked, Larissa, what is health justice? What does it mean for First Nations people? And what does it look like beyond the courtroom doors? And I think justice is elusive, as Chelsea's already said, um, and a destiny that we might never arrive at. Um, but hopefully we are on a journey. Um, I don't think there's a pan-justice. Um, uh, for me, it's a very personal thing. Um, it, as, you know, has already been mentioned, it's about humanity, value. Um, you know, Chelsea's mentioned the Barrowville children, and I always make that um, comparison between us that were born in the 70s and earlier all knew what the um, Beaumont children looked like. Um, it was spread, you know, for decades, every anniversary. It came across our newspapers, but 
do we know what the Barrowville children looked like until recently? And I think that's the stark difference of value in Australia. Um, for me personally, um, it's about my children and what justice is for them. Um, and also the lack of anxiety in my body um, so that I might one day truly trust a system uh, to take care of them um, and uh, give them the justice as First Nations people that they should rightly have. Um, so going on from that, what I'd like to speak about then in, in health justice um, is to focus really on what is health injustice, um, which is often, as I've already mentioned, so invisible. And of course, injustice occurs within and beyond the health system. And crucially for the work we do at the Lower Tree Institute, um, it occurs within the health system itself. Um, you mentioned um, that I've worked in the health system. I was actually a nurse <laughs> um, and I did that for decades as a healthcare professional in policy um, and now in research. And I've heard it all you know, like the stories that I could tell you about other nurses, you know, and my colleagues will tell you this as well, that they've heard people say, you know, Aboriginal people don't need that much pain relief. They don't feel pain the same way. Or I feel embarrassed and I don't want to upset people by asking them if they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. That's not about us. That's actually about the person asking the question and their value of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I could go on with the yarns, but, um, you know, you just have to believe me. <laughs> Um, and what comes as a shock to many of our non-Indigenous colleagues is that rather than health services being viewed as places of healing and of safety for us and our families and our communities, they are too often neither safe nor are they welcoming. Um, and, you know, yet the blame of us having poor health is often blamed on us not accessing these services geographically or because we're just not interested in our health. That's I'm here to tell you today that's not the case. Um, and for some of the, you know, our families, as we've already mentioned, um, these systems are fatal. Um, and we hear a lot in Australia uh, now, although still not enough, um, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody, about the failings of the justice system for our people. But we very rarely hear about the harm, and it's just as fatal, caused by racism. In the, in the health system, despite the evidence that show we get sub-care pathways. You know, and there's evidence out there. We come in with the same you know, diagnosis as a non-Indigenous person and we get a downgraded care pathway. Um, and the failures of the, you know, the health systems and professionals to care for us, you know, begin in the you know began in the early days of colonisation. That time was set. We saw the introduction of diseases. Hopefully, people now experiencing pandemics will know what it was like for our mob. You know, when uh, diseases came to this country, and also the control of missions and legislation, and what that did uh, to us, our communities, uh, medical experimentation. Um, and the lock hospital system that surrounded uh, the shores of Australia, um, removal of children from their mother's arms, you know, the, you know, the health professionals that, that did that um, and the ongoing and systemic abuse and neglect. And these systems, as Chelsea's already mentioned, the blueprint for them remain. So let's not be, um, you know, uh, rose-coloured glasses and, and think that we can actually retrofit something onto these systems and they're going to work for us. Um, and I think that's something for us all individually on this webinar to think about and take away with us today. Um, and in recent years, and Ariane's already mentioned some of these, um, these beautiful people that we've lost, but three names really speak loudly to me about the 
and you know the continuation really of unsafe healthcare for our people and names that I'm sure are familiar to many people on the webinar. Miss Do, um, a 22-year-old Yamaji woman who died in custody in Western Australia in 2014. Um, she died because of deficit care and the coroner found that the police and the hospital staff uh, were influenced by their racial bias. Um, Naomi Williams, um, you know, a 27-year-old Wiradjuri woman, 22 weeks pregnant with her son when she died of septicemia. Um, those of you who are health professionals online will know that that's completely preventable um, at, well, well, treatable at Tumut Hospital in New South Wales 2016. And, um, you know, the colonial inquiry, as we've heard, um, found that she went to the hospital 15 times in the months before she passed away without receiving uh, a referral to a, an expert. And both she and Mr. do, um, you know, died because of racially biased systems. And so too, of course, did, you know, Dr. G, um, who battled his whole life with kidney and liver disease following a childhood hepatitis episode. Um, but if you read that case as well, he received poor treatment because his liver da damage was interpreted as alcohol abuse. Um, you know, what a, a, a loss, not only to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, but to the world. Um, and these are shocking cases, but um, at least many of us have heard about them finally. But I suppose for me, what I worry about are the near misses um, that were, you know, that are not so well known about, um, but many of which Aboriginal Torres Strait Island peoples are aware of these near misses, situations where our people don't feel um, like they have rights or can speak up against ill treatment, um, you know, and you'll see it. People will drive many of kilometres past a hospital down the road to hopefully receive a better service. So for me, um, justice in health is about two things, really. One is about people in the justice system not receiving appropriate care. Um, I've got some things written here, you know, receiving generic drugs, which have horrible side effects, um, as opposed to receiving better medications whilst they're in, in, in prison, being over-medicated um, and being medically incarcerated um, are just some of the, you know, the near misses or the, the ill treatment that we have within our justice system. Um, and the second, of course, is justice in care in the health system. So I'm sure, you know, many people online would agree that, you know, many of us are um, subjected to a profiling lens can be applied to all of us, but for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, too often that lens, um, it occurs in a very harmful way and in, in most times it's a fatal way. So health injustice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the way I see it, um, it's evident in the numbers, the high level of illness experienced, the preventable deaths, uh, the lowest service access, but it's also evident um, in how we feel, whether or not. Uh, cultural safety is present and you'll also see it yeah you know I think I had one doctor say to me how do I know if I'm being culturally safe I said well a black fellow will come back you know <laughs> if you're culturally safe that's one way we do vote with our feet um so going forward I suppose you know um what do we need to do to change all of this and given the that I work in the research now um I'd like to focus it there and to pay tribute to the work being done by um, Chelsea, in particular her team and the paper that she did for the Partnership for Justice Health or the PJH, um, which is titled uh, Race, Racism and the Health Australian Health System. And it's available on the LOWICH website, has many recommendations in it that need to be not cherry-picked, 
but all implemented. Um, and in terms of research, we need action research and evaluation to track that the work that we decide to do is done um, you know, in the health and the justice system to address racism, that it has a measurable baseline, um, that it, we can, you know, see how it's being progressed and how it's being achieved, what strategies are effective, what are ineffective, what impact do we have, you know, on these systems and what difference it's made for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's engagement and experience and outcomes for the health system. Um, we need a national research agenda dedicated to addressing racism effectively um, and a, a research agenda that where the research gaze is on the system um, and our experience in that system, not on us as the problem uh, or as the deficit. And of course, um, what Loitcher always advocates for is that this work needs to be led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers um, and that the commissioning needs to you know, prioritise uh, applications from our mob. Um, I'll leave you with three things that I wrote down, Larissa, for <laughs> things that I think that listeners can think about today. Um, and it comes from my colleague, the, uh, Dr Meg, Meg Williams, who speaks about the three Ps. Um, it's about power, partnership and planning. Um, so knowing your power, so understanding the work of anti-racism, reading, you know, the amazing work of Chelsea in critical race theory, understanding what that is and what it is for you as a person, um, working in partnership, again, understand what that means, you know, to have Indigenous-led, but being a true ally in that space, constantly planning and evaluating that planning. I just want to quickly ask you if you can talk about what the Partnership for Justice in Health is, just because we've made reference to it. I think there's a lot of um, uh, comment in the in the chat about how to find out more about the National Justice Project, but if you could also just quickly tell us about the Partnership for Justice in Health, that would be great. Yeah, sure. No worries. Thanks, Clarissa. So we were established in 2007 and we operate solely on donations, hint, hint. Um, and so we're an alliance of uh, self-determining Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander academics, uh, legal experts and national peak organisations, which mainly health um, and justice organisations. Um, our work is informed and really, um, you know, was the genesis out of the stories that you heard today, um, where people have experienced um, you know, the healthcare system and the justice system, but particularly at that nexus, you know, where someone is either is in the justice system and they haven't received appropriate healthcare. So um, we're committed to working together, you know, with, an, um, with the outcomes, you know, of addressing racism across individual, institutional and systemic racism. Um, we've been uh, doing some great work. We've been establishing a website. Um, so I, I encourage people to go to that website and have a look at that. Uh, we're collaborating on access to research, um, developing and, you know, distributing resources, but particularly to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, families and communities. Um, best practice evidence-based approaches we want to highlight, um, not just on the website, site but you know really knowledge translating that out to the system and to policymakers so that we actually have a true change in policy um yeah and we're operating you know on those principles of indigenous leadership uh, governance and self-determination and you know i think a lot of our work is 
was already mapped out for us really into the Royal um, Commission into Deaths and Custody. There's many strategies and recommendations that have never been implemented there um, so and been left on the shelf or, or poorly implemented, um, as I said, or if at all. So we're building and hopefully implementing on that work with a shared understanding, thanks to Chelsea's paper, um, on, on race and racism. Great. Thank you so much. I thought that'd be very useful for people who want to find out more and know how to get involved. You know, it's my great privilege now to introduce Helena Kylik, who is a settler living and working on the sovereign lands of the Yagara and Turrbal peoples. She's recently, sorry, previously worked as a solicitor in native title and completed a master's at the University of British Columbia. She's currently undertaking a PhD at uh, the University of Queensland under the supervision of Professor Watergo under Dr Chelsea Watergo um, and her research interrogates coronial inquests into preventable Indigenous deaths in the health system. So really critical, important work being done. She's a partner investigator on the ARC Discovery Indigenous Indigenous Health Humanities Project and together with adjunct professor George Newhouse leads the health justice stream. So it's really exciting to have you here to talk about this really important work that you're doing, Helen. Uh, thanks so much, Larissa. Look, I'd just like to start also by acknowledging that I'm joining from the sovereign and unceded lands of the Turbal and Yagra peoples, and that I'd just like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Um, I'd just also like to acknowledge, as others have already, um, that on what would have been Auntie Tanya's birthday, that I send my deepest condolences to her family and her loved ones. Um, it's been their strength and their relentless advocacy, I think, that embodies the possibilities of health justice in this place. Um, I'd just also like to thank quickly the National, National Justice Project um, for the invitation to be part of the panel. And I'm deeply humbled to be here in conversation with all of you, with the distinguished scholars and leaders in health justice. Um, and I'm particularly in awe of being here with Professor Larissa Brent. Um, it's your work that's been so foundational to so much of my thinking throughout my legal career. Um, you've so powerfully illuminated how the law can be operationalised to undermine the ongoing violence of colonial institutions. So thank you so much. Um, I speak today as a white settler um, and an immigrant on this lands. I was born in the United States, but have lived and worked in the engine for most of my life. And I come to this conversation about health justice, not as a knower of what it is or what it means for Indigenous people, but I rather come to this conversation as a lawyer grappling with the possibilities of health justice at the intersection of the health and legal systems. My PhD research takes as its focus the coronial system to consider how preventable Indigenous deaths in the health system are narrated through the coroner's findings as one of inevitable sickness, disease and self-neglect. And through this research, I trace the racial logics that construct an account of Indigenous people seeking care in the health system as destined to die. This includes interrogating tropes that are repeatedly deployed, and I think um, um, Janine just alluded to in, in her presentation, this idea of Indigenous patients as being drunk, disorderly, violent, or as untrustworthy as unreliable patients. But such tropes aren't merely personal bias or prejudice towards Indigenous patients. They constitute narratives that render Indigenous peoples as beyond care, so that the health system and then the coroner and their findings lament if only they would save themselves. So in order to identify those preventable Indigenous deaths in the health system that have been referred to a coroner and that those that have been subject of an inquest, I had to navigate a lengthy process to gain access to the only national database that holds comprehensive coronial data across each jurisdiction, the National Coronial Information System. This privately held database 
um, managed by the Victorian Department of Justice and Community Safety, holds all coronial case material, including coronial findings about Indigenous deaths into the health system. And it's this material that was used to, um, to conduct a quantitative survey of Indigenous deaths in health, as well as a qualitative analysis of the findings. And despite there being publicly available information around Indigenous deaths in custody, there has not yet been any reporting of information about Indigenous deaths in the health system that have been referred to a coroner or those that have been subject of an inquest. So in navigating access to the NCIS, to this National Coronial Information System, it became apparent that the process of gaining access to information wasn't simply a hurdle to overcome, but itself revealed the systemic nature of racism within coronial law. That is that not only are processes of racialization working through these coronial findings, but they're embedded within the coronial system, including its information systems. It was through the work of gaining access to the NCIS that I was told that the database was never intended to be used for qualitative case studies, that there were significant concerns about the proposed consent mechanisms in seeking the consent of next of kin and in using the loved one's information held by the NCIS. The case material contains lived experiences narrated through reports, and it's these lived experiences that are powerful testimony to the racial violence of the health system. But the NCIS couldn't see these cases as testimony, only as data, as statistics. I think this speaks to why quantitative analysis can never provide an understanding of the harms of the health and legal systems for Indigenous people. Instead, the possibilities lie by looking to the testimonies that refuse the narratives constructed by the courts about Indigenous deaths and health, including those of the bereaved families that refuse the state's account of justice. So by analysing thousands of reported Indigenous deaths in the health system from every jurisdiction, I found that there were just under 4,000 Indigenous deaths that had been referred to a coroner in this time frame of 2000 to 2018. And over the same period from these reported cases, just over 350 were the subject of coronial inquests. From this survey of thousands of reported deaths, critical issues emerged, including the high rate of preventable Indigenous death from septus, heart disease, a young, young men and women across all jurisdictions. And through this research, there was also a recurring discourse of inevitable and unavoidable death by, quote, natural causes. But this erased the violence of the health system. Cases in which the existence of comorbidities became their foundations to conclude that despite the state's best efforts, nothing more could be done that the health system had done everything it could, but the patient was always destined to die. It's this racial logic that has long been used against Indigenous people in the colony. And while we see this discourse mirrored in current COVID-related deaths in New South Wales as tragic yet inevitable due to underlying health conditions, for Indigenous peoples, this discourse of natural causes and pre-existing medical conditions has long been used to mask the brutality of the state. You need only need to look at the recent death of Nathan Reynolds in which his death from an asthma attack in custody was framed as a death by natural causes, thereby erasing the failures of the medical staff to provide adequate care. The coronial process insists that the process isn't about apportioning blame or it isn't about making findings of guilt or culpability, but such caveats claim to clarify the legislative limits as to the scope and function of the coronial process, but instead they signal a turn from hope to benevolence, of a system seeking to understand the truth of a death to prevent avoidable future deaths, to become a tragedy of inevitable death. Individuals who are, as Indigenous people, destined to die despite the state's best efforts. So this pivot from hope to tragedy isn't by accident. It's orchestrated and it's scripted. And it's not unique to the coroner's courts. Its roots run deep in the colony.
It's an insistence that the state is always benevolent, even as it smooths the dying pillow. So what does health justice look like beyond the courtroom? For me, watching the live stream of Nathan Reynolds' sisters standing on the New South Wales Coroner's Court on the day the coroner handed down her findings, his family's presence embodied how for bereaved Indigenous families, health justice can't be found in the coroner's findings or recommendations, but in the insistence that the findings not be the exclusive nor the authoritative script narrating the death of their beloved brother. Families know that the court's final determination is a performance of power. The families of the deceased are fighting, as Amy Maguire states, as part of the continuing resistance against an occupying force. The coroner's performance is not only about their loved ones passing, it's a performance long rehearsed and connected to the continuing dispossession of Indigenous lands. It's a performance that the families know well with an ending that fuels anger on the steps and in the streets, as the families who've lost loved ones chance no justice, no peace. As families grieve their loved ones, watch the court's performance, they know that justice won't be found through the coroner's courts, for health justice lies elsewhere. It exists, as Professor Watergo states, through black being and because of black power. Thank you so much for that. Really insightful and very powerful. And as I said, the work you're doing is incredibly important in terms of us being able to rethink the debate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more too as a partner investigator on the Indigenous Health Humanities Project working with Professor Watergo. What does Indigenous Health Humanities offer in the context of your research into coronial inquests and thinking about health justice? Yeah, oh, thanks so much, Lisa. Absolutely. I, you know, all of this thinking and all of this work emerges from and through conversations that we have um, bringing to bear all the different disciplinary insights from across our, our spaces in the academy and through activism and community um, groundedness. So it's, it's a gift um, and it's a way of foregrounding Indigenous sovereignty through all of this work um, and what that then the implications of that for thinking about and theorising about health justice um, and I think for me, it's being reminded then too um, that health justice isn't strictly a legal response. It's not a process or an event. And I think as, as um, Professor Watergo started at the outset, it's a feeling. Um, and it's embodied, I think, as a few speakers have said today as well. So I think it's the gift of bringing to bear all of these insights um, to change the way that we think about justice and health justice specifically. How can people find out more about the work that you're doing? We've given a couple of links for people to find out more, but if, you know, obviously your research is ongoing, but what are some of the places where people can follow this really important research? Yeah, well, I've done some work um, also with Professor Watico through the Institute of Collaborative Race Research, where we've done um, some expert reports and submissions. And um, there's certainly um, links to websites there that you'll see um, those reports and a lot of that thinking that underpins what I've presented today. So that's another site to go to. Great. Thanks so much. I think the other thing that is really great to have your work um, in this context too is it does show what important work our allies can do and in this framework of, you know, working uh, under the leadership of Professor Watergo, um, being able to be consistent around the Indigenous-led sovereignty approach, uh, but a really great example for people who want to be really true allies. And I just wonder, since there's probably quite a few people on the webinar who are not First Nations people, if you've got a little bit of wisdom about how to be a good ally in this space. 
<laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. No, no. But it, that's the gift of again an indigenous health humanities agenda. Um, it's it's maybe not about being a good ally, um, rather just allowing indigenous sovereignty um, to frame thinking. And when you do that, it shifts and challenges um, you and your being. And that's the gift. Um, so it's it's a wonderful opportunity. And so I'd yeah encourage everyone to certainly read. I think there's a paper that's linked um, uh, around this. So that'd be a good starting spot. You've just heard Helena Kalik, a PhD student at the University of Queensland. You've also been listening to Indigenous Health Humanities Scholar with the Queensland University of Technology, Professor Chelsea Wadigo, CEO of the Lowitcher Institute and former CEO at the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, Janine Muhammad, and Project and Partnerships Manager and Solicitor at the National Justice Project, Ariane Dozer. They were taking part in the online forum Health Justice held earlier this year. The event was organised by the National Justice Project in partnership with the Lowitcher Institute, the Jambana Institute, Partnership for Justice in Health and the Indigenous Health Humanities Project at QUT. To take us out tonight, some music from multi-award winning country artist Troy Cassadaly. This track is taken from his 2002 album Long Way Home and is called Born to Survive. There's an old John Deere underneath the tree 500 acres, my dad and me Worked this land until we hurt Trying to make a living out of plain old dirt Really never said nothing when mama left just kept his feelings to himself His pride was hurt His heart was broke He sits and he rolls Another smoke says Son, this is all I know And I guess it goes to show He said We were born
That was Troy Cassadaly with his song Born to Survive. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.